I've never been a part of a rivalry game like this. It was the, probably the most hostile sporting environment I've ever been in. Oh, it's wild. Everybody knows when it's Johnny Tommy week. Everyone. And it's Johnny Tommy. It's not Tommy Johnny. It's Johnny Tommy. I mean, those eruptions from the sidelines were unlike any other. You look out and like you see a sea of red. You just hear this rumble in the crowd, and it's it's something that kind of gives you chills, even if it's still thinking about it. The tradition, and it's the hatred, too. One of the first games, I was like, yeah, I like, got sacked. I tried to help someone up. And one of the times, was like, don't touch me. And I'm just like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, it's like that. Even the name is contentious. Is it Johnny Tommy or is it Tommy Johnny? The two fan bases can't even agree on that. But one thing they do agree on is this rivalry is something special, even if you've probably never heard of either school. This is the story of Minnesota's battle for the Holy Grail, the Division Three football rivalry between St. John's University and the University of St. Thomas, the Johnnies and the Tommies. It's the story of its rise, its untimely fall, and the people who lived it. My name is Stephen Gorgie, and I'll be your host. This is episode one of Johnny's and Tommy's, alike but different. To truly understand the rivalry, you first need to understand the two schools. Pat Borzi is a freelance writer who has written about the two programs and their rivalry for Min Post and the New York Times. You have two sets of alumni who are really enamored with themselves. <laughs> and uh, you know, very smart, very confident, and uh, have very much uh, respect for the other side. Tom Elliott is the sports editor at the West Central Tribune in Wilmer, Minnesota. Elliott spent years in the sports department at the St. Cloud Times, where he covered prep sports, St. John's, and more. Quite frankly, they end up attracting a lot of the same students. It's not unusual for people who may be interested in one or the other and applying to both. Both Catholic institutions very good private schools with, uh, you know, good requirements to get in, uh, expensive to go to, really high academics, uh, and they both have excellent sports programs. They play up the differences in the schools, but they're really kind of alike in a lot of ways. Another similarity is where the students come from. Minnesotans represent over 75% of the student population at each school, according to College Board. Here's Borzy again. There's a lot of support among all the Catholic high schools around here. Everybody knows each other in the Mayak. I mean, these are all kids that competed against each other, whether it was in the Twin Cities or outstate up by St. Cloud, where, which is close to where the St. John's campus is. These kids all know each other. These families all know each other. There are second and third generations of families at these schools. There are legacies all over the place. But for all the similarities, the schools also have stark differences. In fall 2021, over 9,000 students were enrolled at St. Thomas, including 3,000-plus graduate students. St. John's, on the other hand, had a total enrollment of just over 1,600. After being founded as an all-male school, St. Thomas became co-educational in 1977. St. John's is still an all-male school to this day, but does have a partnership with the College of St. Benedict, a nearby school for women. The biggest difference between the two may be geography. St. Thomas is located in the heart of St. Paul, while St. John's is located northwest of the Twin Cities, in Collegeville. Although separated by less than 90 miles, the two campuses can feel worlds apart. Jackson Erdman played quarterback at St. John's from 2016 to 2019. Here he is describing the St. John's campus. 
Oh, it's gorgeous. There's woods. There's a there's a huge arboretum. Um, big big buildings. Campus is like all huge trees. Ivy on the buildings. You can do, you can bike in the woods. You can go on the lake. Like oh, it's so much. If you're an outdoorsy kid, like that that's that's where you go. Brendan Klein attended St. John's from 2015 to 2019, where he was a member of the track and field team and served as the student senate vice president. It's kind of like going to school at a cabin, in the sense you're right on a lake. Uh, it's got a small uh, school atmosphere where you get to kind of know the people that are around you, and it is an all-male school. It really is kind of getting nestled right into nature. And so you, uh, when you walk around campus, it's, it's kind of one of those places where you feel like it, it doesn't feel like you're really amongst, like not like amongst civilization, like us, yeah. <laughs> you know, all the amenities you need, it just it felt very simple. Here's Erdman again. I didn't even know any of the cities up there, really, because they're all so small. And it's like a bunch of farm boys, you know, growing up. And that's, you know, that's St. John's. It's just the hard-nosed football. And like St. Thomas is in the heart of the cities. And it's, it's really kind of like a bunch of country country boys, um, blue collar versus the St. Thomas, you know, the city boys, kind of the prep boys. Josh Parks has experience with both schools. After starting his college football career at the University of Minnesota, he briefly transferred to St. John's before playing running back at St. Thomas, between the 2016 and 2019 seasons. And I was there for two weeks. I uh, did fall camp there. And I ended up realizing, I was like, hey, this is not the place for me. It was very out in the country. I'm more of a city boy. Um, I like to do you know, a lot of activities in the cities, eating, going out, those sorts of things. Steve Harrell grew up just outside of Milwaukee. He played linebacker at St. Thomas between 2014 and 2017. And the location was a major reason why nothing compared to, to St. Thomas. It's kind of like a rectangle. It's like a little chunk out of uh, out of the neighborhood. You can see the cities like you got uh, Minneapolis and then you got St. Paul and you can see both. Milwaukee is a very a lot more of a low rise type city, more industrial. So these two cities with the Minneapolis and St. Paul, a more lively, a lot younger crowd and something that again, I was just interested to learn a little about. And that's I mean, why I've continued to live here. Howard Sinker is the digital sports editor for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He also teaches at McAllister College, one of the schools that founded the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, along with St. John's and St. Thomas. They're very, very different kinds of schools. St. Thomas is very entrepreneurial and business-oriented. St. John's is more spiritually and academically focused. So they have different constituencies naturally, and probably the safest and healthiest place for that to play out is in athletics. And that's exactly where the rivalry played out for over 100 years. The schools first met on the gridiron on Thanksgiving Day 1901. The Johnnies defeated the Tommies. And even at the turn of the century, beating the school from the big city was something to brag about. In defeating St. Thomas, it holds the ball over all Minneapolis and St. Paul teams, read the St. John student newspaper, The Record, One name from that inaugural meeting still lives on in Holy Grail lore to this day. It's a name that stings Johnny's and is celebrated by Tommy's. Ignatius Aloysius O'Shaughnessy, a St. John student who rushed for 76 yards in the 1901 win. Here's Elliot with more. He was caught in the woods drinking alcohol, kicked off campus in disgrace. So he transferred to St. Thomas. And long story short, uh, Ignatius. Aloysius O'Shaughnessy is one of the greatest uh, St. Thomas graduates of all time. After captaining the Tommy football team, O'Shaughnessy would accumulate great wealth in the oil industry 
and become a well-known philanthropist. He donated millions to St. Thomas, and both the football stadium and library bear his name today. Meanwhile, Johnny fans can only wonder, what if? The rivalry continued to grow through the 20s, 30s, and 40s. In 1920, both schools became charter members of a new conference, made up of seven small Minnesota private schools. The conference was known as the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, or the MIAC. The rivalry gained more meaning as a conference title was often at stake when the teams met, and the games were unpredictable. Each school won four conference titles between 1920 and 1939. By 1935, the rivalry had earned a reputation, as the Johnnies dashed the Tommies' title hopes in 1933, and the Tommies returned the favor the next year. The Johnnies should have a slight edge on the Tommies if comparative scores mean anything, but experience has taught that they mean nothing except trouble for whoever is foolhardy enough to place any confidence in them, read the record ahead of the 1935 game. St. John's even brought in temporary bleachers to support the highly anticipated battle of unbeaten foes. A crowd of 3,000 people sat through a driving snowstorm to watch the teams play to a 0-0 draw. Attendance data from the time is sparse. But based on available records from St. John's, it was the highest attended St. John's home game to that point. As the 40s arrived, the rivalry only grew bigger. The Tommies dominated the decade, winning five conference titles and all seven games against the Johnnies. The 1949 game once again had conference title stakes on the line, as St. Thomas brought an undefeated conference record to Collegeville to take on the one-loss Johnnies. Ahead of the game, the St. Cloud Times called it the most intense rivalry that exists today in the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. 7,000 fans attended the one-point Tommy victory that gave St. Thomas its third title in as many years. But the Tommy's dominance wouldn't last long. In 1953, a young coach arrived in Collegeville from Carroll College in Montana. When outgoing St. John's coach and future member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame's inaugural class, Johnny Blood McNally, met the young coach, he reportedly told him it was an impossible place to win. The young coach's name was John Gallardi, and he would go on to win more games than any coach in the history of college football, regardless of level. He would come to define St. John's football, the rivalry, and small school football for the next 60 years. Gallardi enjoyed great success at both the high school and college levels. By the time he was 26, he had already won four high school league titles and three conference titles in four years at Carroll. That success continued at St. John's right away. In 1953, St. John's defeated defending champion Gustavus, and a week later beat St. Thomas in front of over 6,000 fans in O'Shaughnessy Stadium. It was the first time since the title-winning year of 1938 that Johnnies had beaten both teams. Frank Rakuski worked for years as a reporter at the St. Cloud Times, where he covered the Mayak and St. John's. He also wrote a book called Gallardi, Road to the Record. He now works for St. John's as a writer and video producer. You know, his first year, they had a lot of success. Um, they ended up sharing the conference title. They beat Gustavus, who was a power. So that kind of bought him some equity and then kind of built it. It was kind of a process over those 10 years. Uh, but the, the class that he had coming in, I think in 1960, the guys who were freshmen, you know, he that was where he started to hit his stride. And if you look at the 60s, that was kind of where St. John's really started to establish its, its dominance. And dominate they did. During Gallardi's 60-year tenure that ran from 1953 to 2012, the Johnnies won 27 conference titles, two NAIA national championships, and two NCAA Division III national championships. 
Since 1993, the Gallardi Trophy has been awarded to the most outstanding Division III football player. It is essentially the D3 version of the Heisman. But not only did Gallardi win during his career, he did so in his own unique manner. Elliot again. The guy was a living legend. He did it in the most unique, strange way you've ever heard of. He treated people like adults, which in football in 1940s and 50s and 60s, that was considered unusual. You'd beat the heck out of guys and tried to make them tough so that they could play tough on Saturday. And he was like, why are we beating the heck out of our guys? We want them to beat the heck out of the other team. So we're going to take it easy on them and make it more of a thinking man's game. Nobody at a St. John's practice ever wore full equipment or pads. They only wore shoulder pads and helmets. That's it. They they never tackled. They, they would just constantly run plays and try to outsmart opponents. No tackling in practice was just one of the many items on Gallardi's famous list of no's that included no calling him coach, no whistles, and no lengthy calisthenics. Anthony LaPanta is a 1990 St. John's graduate who hosted the John Gallardi Show and has called St. John's and other Mayak games over the years. He is currently the TV voice of the Minnesota Wild and hosts Twins Live on Bally Sports North. He refused to ever do anything because it's the way it was always done. He always was looking for was there a reason why we're doing it, or would it be better if we did this instead? Whether it was how they practiced, how they ran their offseason, X's and O's, you name it. He used to talk about like these teams back in the old days that would use the, you know, run through the tires and everything to for agility drills. And he said, I've never seen a tire on a field during a game. So if all of a sudden they start throwing tires out there and our defenders have to run through a maze of tires before they make a tackle. Then we'll start doing it at practice. Until then, we're not going to worry about it. Elliot again. They, You know how everybody does, all right, ready, jumping jacks. And so they look around and they go, uh, jumping jacks, one. Ready, go, one. Oh, hey, yeah, yeah, good job, good job. Okay, uh, it's a beautiful sunny day here. Let's do the nice day drill. The nice day drill is everybody lines up, puts their head behind their back, lays on the football field, looks up in the sky, and, and they all repeat. It's a nice day. It's a nice day. That's their pregame warm-ups. It, if you're stressed about a game, a little too amped up, a little nervous, got the butterflies going, this is going to relax you and make you laugh about stuff instead of being all wound up and crazy. St. Thomas people hate all this stuff because, you know, the, there's this aura and this legacy that Gallardi left that, you know, they can't replicate ever. Rakuski again. One of the things he did really well, I mean, was adjusting, changing with the times. He he didn't get locked into certain, you know, formations or I'm going to do this. This is my offense. You know, if he had in the 70s, he had a lot of good running backs and the quarterback he ran, a, he developed an offense, the quadruple option, and they won a national title with it. But then in the 80s, when he started to have more receivers, and in the 90s, I mean, it started to become Air Johnny's and they threw the ball a lot. So, you know, he wasn't he was a guy who could adjust. I guess if I was going to say anything, that might be the biggest thing about John is that he was able to adjust, whether to the personnel or to what another team was doing on the field. He was able to to really make the adjustments he needed to do and make the changes to do whatever, you know, whatever was needed to win that day. Gallardi had turned Collegeville into a football town. In 1993, St. John's drew over 8,300 fans for a homecoming win over Hamlin. 
Over 10,000 showed up to see the Johnnies take on the Tommies that same year. Football was a passion, a way of life, and the setting was unique. Collegeville developed a reputation as a hostile place to play, a reputation that still exists to this day and fuels the rivalry. Here's Parks on his experience playing in Collegeville. It's something that I was not used to at all, right? I, I think the biggest difference, um, especially initially, was the noise, right? You look out and like you see a sea of red and you just hear just hear this rumble in the crowd. And it's, it's something that kind of gives you chills even still thinking about it. Once I played in that game, I knew that this was a rivalry that was going to be lasting for a long time. Noel Ortiz also played running back at St. Thomas. Here he is describing his experience with St. John's fans during pregame warmups ahead of the 2018 game. A fan sort of jumps the fence and just starts getting in my face, just like barking at me. And I was like, all right. So I like didn't like hit the guy, but I like gave him a good nudge. You know, like you know, if you're gonna come at me, I'm gonna I'm playing a game. I got I got stuff to do. You know. Here's Harold again. It was extremely fun because like you're just the villain. Once you're on the field, you really don't see anything else. You look to the sidelines. You see your, you see your other the other players and the coaches, and then you see what's on the field. Um, and and you're locked in. But the energy from outside still infects you. So just how much does this rivalry mean to the community? Here's Erdman to explain. I had friends in high school who their dads went to St. John's and they're, they're not allowed to say St. Thomas. They, they went on vacation to the islands when they'd only go to St. John's, not St. Thomas. Gallardi ramped up the rivalry by bringing energy to the St. John's faithful and wins to Collegeville. But for his players, his impact went far beyond football. Here's Connor Bruns, who played quarterback at St. John's from 2010 to 2013 and was the starting quarterback in Gallardi's last game in 2012. He's one of a kind. He's, he's, he's the nicest, most genuine person you'll ever meet. I think for me, it's just the genuine human being he, he was. I mean, you'd go into his office, he'd remember everything about you, he'd remember your family, ask about your family. Um, it's kind of more about life in general and schoolwork when you would, you know, off hours go to his, his office. That's really his legacy. Um, what sticks out to me is just the overall teaching of, of life versus kind of football. He was also known for his quick wit and sense of humor. Here's Bruns again. It was fall camp. We're all, you know, taking up the whole f- field. Quarterbacks are thrown to wide receivers and a quarterback threw it a little probably too far just based on where the defense was at the other section of, of the field. Uh, the wide receiver ran into John and John took a tumble and it was, you know, everybody's like, you know, he's mid eighties, right. Taking a hard hit from a college kid. He gets up, everything's fine. And he still has the road with all like, you know, after the, after the practice, everybody comes together and he throws like a little one-liner to our starting quarterback about how he takes a, a hit better than him. But for the Tommies, Gallardi's success was no laughing matter. Gallardi finished his career 43-17 and against St. Thomas, with long stretches of dominance. Over a 20-game stretch spanning the late 50s to late 70s, the Johnnies went 18-2 and against their rival. Between 1990 and 2009, they went 17-3. and In 2001... Former St. Thomas coach Mark Dienhart told the St. Cloud Times that, quote, For many years, I think the problem was that St. Thomas teams didn't treat it like just another game. And because of that, they tried too hard. End quote. St. John's national success and St. Thomas's inability to get over the hump 
only seemed to create more interest in the rivalry. In 1996 and 1997, the teams even played in the Metrodome, home of the Minnesota Twins and Vikings. They drew over 12,000 fans for the 1997 game. And despite St. John's dominance, the games were often exciting. Rakuski again. Even in those years, I mean, it was it was a big game on campus. Both schools were excited about it. And they were, there were some competitive games in that stretch. Uh, in fact, the one that stands out most is in 2003 when John was uh, approaching Eddie Robinson's uh, record. Uh, in fact, number 408, which tied Eddie Robinson, was played down at St. Thomas. And St. Thomas was, was struggling at that time. They weren't necessarily contending for conference titles. But they gave St. John's all they could handle that day. The Johnnies won it on a field goal at the end. And, and so, I mean, it, it came down to the wire. For LaPanta, the 1985 game was one of the most amazing endings he's ever seen. St. John's ended up winning the game 16-15. to 15, But it was a bizarre finish. That it was a, The Tommies had a 15-7 to 7 lead and somehow wound up losing the game. They had a guy that stepped out of bounds and stopped the clock when St. John's was out of timeouts and St. John's wound up, they scored, they missed a two point conversion that would have tied the game, but then St. Thomas just had to run the clock out and they failed to do so, had to give the ball back to St. John's because a guy stepped out of bounds and then Don Pribble ended up kicking a field goal on the last play of the game to win it 16 to 15. It was, that was maybe the single most amazing finish I've ever seen. There were so many that were just unbelievable finishes, and it didn't matter what the team's records were. They were always, I know it's an old cliche, but it just really didn't matter. I remember there was a game, St. Thomas won a 31-27 to game at the Metrodome that was, I think it was the only time Mal Scanlon beat Gallardi, and he retired in the locker room after the game. And St. John's had a chance at the end of the game to win it, and uh, they threw a pass that the officials' rule had bounced and called it incomplete. And the Tommies won the game. Scanlon resigned as the head coach in the locker room after the game, and and moved into like an administrative position at the school or something. But it was he was a tremendous coach that just never beat John until that moment. And and St. John's was a lot better than St. Thomas that year, but the Tommies won that game. It just was. There were a lot of games like that over the years where. It uh, the results, you know, the 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 series just had enough of that magic to it that made the rivalry grow. But the Tommies wanted more than crazy finishes and occasional wins. After the 2007 season, St. Thomas head coach Dan Roney resigned after a disappointing two and eight season and an zero and ten record against St. John's. Here's Borzy again. St. Thomas's alumni got tired of getting beat fifty to nothing by by Gilardi, you know. And eventually they, they said, we got to get somebody. We got to get our own Gilardi. I don't want to say they got their own Gilardi because that, I don't want to disrespect John's memory, but they certainly got a coach, that a, a, a high-quality coach who knew what he was doing and had the uh, charisma and the wherewithal and the football smarts to, to turn a sleeping giant into a walking giant. That coach? a 33-year-old Connecticut native named Glenn Caruso, and he would be exactly the man needed to take the program and rivalry to unforeseen heights. Join me next time on Johnny's and Tommy's for episode two, The Pinnacle. They were more competitive. You can see that they were building. Glenn is a very good coach and a very good recruiter. And when he took over, you saw the results. 
the second game in the playoffs, not even close. Like, we whooped them up. You know, suddenly they're selling 20,000 tickets, 30,000, and they're almost filling up Target Field. When he hit the end zone and those eruptions went off for the first touchdowns, fireworks were going off. I mean, my, my heart was racing. Getting crazy goosebumps thinking about it. It's just like pure euphoria. 